clean line design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Business Disrupted. Assistance animals come in all breeds and sizes, but the most recognizable is the service dog. The Iraq and Afghanistan wars have brought a lot of attention to service dogs. There are 18.2 million veterans living in the United States, and one in three struggles with a post-combat health issue. 20% of those suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, and not coincidentally, about 20% of service dogs are trained to assist with issues related to PTSD. But these animals provide assistance to people confronting limitations far beyond just the veteran community. Service animals have become so popular that disreputable breeders and trainers have emerged and services promising to register your pet as a service animal so you can fly with your animal are more than happy to take money from people who want to get in on the action. In the United States, 61 million adults live with disabilities. There are about 500,000 service dogs working as a team with an individual with disabilities so that the individual can live a life without restrictions. And still, the public isn't entirely accepting of service dogs. The Americans with Disabilities Act, which protects the rights of persons with disabilities to use a service animal in public spaces, is still frequently misunderstood. 89% of service animal owners report interference at some point, and 42% of service dog owners have reported an attack on their animal. We need to understand more about service animals, why they're different from pets, and why they're necessary. To help us make sense of all this, we are joined by highly respected trainers Dale and Lou Picard of Educated Canines Assisting with Disabilities of Torrington, Connecticut, a nonprofit organization that has trained and placed more than 350 service dogs in the last 26 years. Lou and Dale, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Dale, I understand that you have delivered more than 800 puppies in your career. That's the best part of my job. <laughs> how, how, how do you not have the most adorable job on earth? <laughs> I, uh, I live to deliver puppies, believe me. Uh, working in the office can get awful boring. You want a little bit of excitement, bring me a, a, a female ready to deliver puppies, and I, I go, go in second gear. I really love it. Well, when, when, we, when we talk about the, the field of veterinary science, we'll have to have you back for that. But for now, <laughs> let's talk about the lexicon. There are a lot of terms that are used probably without a lot of accuracy. Service dogs, skilled companion dogs, facility dogs, assistance dogs, emotional support dogs. Can you, can you help us unwrap them, Dale and Lou? Uh, what are the differences between these, these different categories? Well, they're service dogs. So the big difference is, was your dog specifically trained to mitigate your disability? So we have underneath the assistance dog umbrella, you'd have guide dogs, hearing dogs, service dogs, dogs with, uh, for people with psychological disability or psychiatric disabilities, the service dog could handle for that as well. Um, ECAD trains for service dogs, dogs for children with autism, and then we also place facility dogs. The big difference is who has public access and who doesn't have public access in these categories. Uh, underneath the assistance dog umbrella, guide dogs, hearing dogs, service dogs, all have public access. Facility dogs do not have public access unless that dog is in with a person with a disability. 
So even though a facility dog might be handled by a social worker or a, um, a, a psychologist, if you're taking that person out in public, then the dog can go with them because that dog's been specifically trained to help that person stay calm or stay you know, relaxed and wherever they're at. That's the problem. The problem is, was your dog properly trained? So when you call in-home skilled dog, that dog stays in a home, does not have public access. Emotional support dog can support you emotionally, but they're not giving you public access because there's no specific training for it. So I want to take a step back. We talked about facility dogs, and you mentioned those a moment ago. So a facility dog is a dog that's trained to work in an organization uh, to assist people. But so, for example, there are dogs that work in hospitals, and they're yeah. there to comfort patients. There are dogs in courthouses to comfort witnesses and and other people involved in 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 some type of court procedure. Those those dogs you you cannot by right of law take a facility dog across the street during the lunch break for a pizza, unless that dog happens to be assisting the person who's going across the street for the pizza with a specific disability for which they have been trained. Is that right? Correct. Or if they're on the job, same with, same with the police dogs. So if you're, if you're in a court case with the dog and the handler is there and is in the court case, and then they break for lunch, then that dog can go with them to the lunch. But mm -hmm. if it's Saturday afternoon, that handler should not be taking that dog out to lunch or going to the movies if they're not working, if they're not on the job working. So I mentioned earlier that you know the, the purpose behind a service dog, a trained service dog, is to match with a person and, and with that person create a team that allows the person to live without restrictions. Correct. And, and so to what degree is, and, and we'll get much deeper into this as we, as we discuss, but at a high level, to what degree is a dog trained for a specific person and that specific person's needs? So with ECAD, we train a base commands. Okay. So we teach all the dogs to retrieve all the dogs to tug open a door um, to all the obedience things, but then it depends on the person. So if I have a person who needs also needs balance work, then we would train the dog to help them on the stairs or balance them up and off of curbs. So that would be more of a specialty thing. For the veterans, we would train the dog to alert them, wake them up in night terrors or alert them to take their medication. I don't train all the dogs to do that, only the dogs that would be suited for the person who would need it. Okay. And you mentioned emotional support dogs, and this opens up uh, quite the hot button issue because it's a term that that has been used over broadly and, and really comes without a lot of training. There, there has been a, a stigma attached to the idea of emotional support dogs. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, the, the problem is, is they were abused, right? So people would just take their pet dogs anywhere and say, this is my emotional support dog, but they had no frame of reference on how this dog is supposed to behave. So then you're starting to cloud the waters how is this dog supposed to help you emotionally? Well, I can pet him. Well, that's not a task. So it broke down to emotional support dogs were not being specifically trained. So that's where it broke down. You're not, your dog was not trained to, to help you with your disability. And, and so what you're really doing is you're calling your pet 
an emotional support dog and then subjecting your pet to social to, to stimuli that the dog is not even remotely trained to handle. Perhaps most cases. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And, then, and then you're not even behaving well. You're letting that dog go visit everyone around or let it sit on your lap while you're eating at a restaurant. That's, that's not acceptable. So let's, let, let's talk about the, the types of assistance dogs. You mentioned autism uh, and children with autism. My understanding is that th- that before the uh, the overwhelming need to assist veterans uh, happened, service dogs were were seeing a huge increase in number because of the ability to treat aut- or to assist with autism. Yes, yes, that was a big trend just before nine eleven happened. And it was fairly new because they wouldn't, they were only allowing people with, to get dogs if you were a certain age, 16 years and older, or maybe 10 years and older. For when it came to the autistic arena, Dale and I felt that if we could get the child younger, if I could have a child when he's three, four, five years old, maybe he would never get in the habit of running. Maybe he wouldn't be so frustrated in public. And typically it comes because the parents don't want to let the child go. You know, they're afraid. They, they don't have any safety valve, so they want to hold their hand. Right. But the, almost every child I know at, at that age wants to explore the world. Well, they, a child with autism is not allowed to because of safety factors. Well, if you can anchor the child to the dog by tethering them, well, that gives that child four feet to move. And if you put the leash on the, the, for the parents, now that child's got eight feet to move and explore the world a little bit more, still keeping that child safe and allowing the parents to have that, that mechanism to do so. It, it does that for them. It also gives society this visual cue that this child is not misbehaving. He's not, he wasn't raised you know, poorly. He has a condition that allow that causes him to get overstimulated, and by being overstimulated, one of a couple things can happen. He can start to have a meltdown. He can start to be overactive. But with the dog, the dog helps ground him and helps give him a, a chance to focus on something else, tactile and visually. And the dog can also do deep pressure for him or her. One of the. Um, one of the things that that service dogs can do with a number of, of types of conditions is sense when something is coming before the person realizes it. They can pick up subtle changes in breathing rate. They can pick up subtle changes in in uh, in in, be, in muscular behavior that that people don't even know are happening in themselves. Does the service dog work the same way with an autistic child? Can they tell when a meltdown is about to start and then do something to disrupt that process? Yes. Um, I would say not at the beginning, but as they live with the child longer, they can sense it either either through their reaction or the tones of what they're, they're vocal or physical, but there's cues that happen. Mm-hmm. And just as much as you, you know, biting your lip if you get nervous, well, the dog will pick up on that after a while. Or if you clench your fist and you start to become tight, and next thing you know, you, you know, the mother or the father is saying, Oh, what's the matter? Go help your boy. Go give him some kisses. Well, the dog can pick up the cue before the verbal cue. 
And among the other types of assistance dogs that you mentioned, um, there are there are hearing dogs for deaf people, presumably that will alert their person when there is some auditory stimuli to which they should be aware or should react. Yeah. Um, there are medical response dogs that will uh, that will intervene if their person is undergoing some form of medical event. Dale, I think you mentioned when we were discussing other issues that that people with respiratory problems, if their ventilator stops, the the dog can rouse them so they can do something before the condition exacerbates. Yes, uh, a lot of these uh, people asleep with ventilators, uh, they'll, they'll zone out over time the, bell, the whistles and the bells that they put on the machines to wake them up when the machine malfunctions. So uh, we train dogs to wake them up so that they don't have to have a nurse next to their bed uh, or the parent doesn't have to stay awake half the night paying attention to the machine and, 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 and fall asleep. There is always that fear. So with the dog, we've t- taught the dogs to wake them up uh, by tugging on a string attached to their body, depending on what the person is, is looking for. And then the person will wake up, reset their machine, put their mask back on, clean it out, put it back on, and then go back to sleep. So it eliminates having a nurse next to your bed or somebody having any monitors uh, in somebody else's room to, to keep the, the monitor to make sure that you're, you're breathing all night. Over time, the dogs will let you know when you start clogging up. And the, even before the bells and the whistles start to uh, alert, the dog will hear the person's uh, breathing change. And then they'll start waking them up before the bells and the whistles, which is a real beautiful thing. And what are they, at the outset, what are they responding to? Are they responding to the sound of the bells and whistles? At the beginning, they're responding to the noise. Yes. Yes. So they're just they're trained to react to to the noise by by rousing their person. Okay. So uh, then we kind of get to along with medical response dogs, we get to the kind of veterans trifecta: um, mobility assistance, psychiatric assistance. Um, mobility assistance, I imagine, is exactly what it sounds like. It assists the their person in in getting up in steadying themselves in balance, in mobility, in stability issues. Right. And retrieving anything lower levels. I, on your on your website, there are a couple pictures of dogs carrying prosthetic limbs to their people. That, yeah. that, that, that's, uh, I imagine that is both um, an assistance dog and a mobility assistance dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, then, and then psychiatric assistance. Um, there was a study by Canines for Warriors and Purdue University that found that in veterans with diagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder, those who had a service dog produced cortisol levels close to those of a standard healthy adult. So clearly the, the presence of a service dog in the life of somebody with PTSD will, will help mitigate the PTSD what are and 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 psychiatric assistance dogs span far beyond PTSD. We we spoke earlier about how emotional support dogs could actually be legitimate service dogs if the person had a legitimate need and was undergoing psych, psychiatric treatment for a need for which the dog could provide a relief. But what do broadly what do psychiatric assistance dogs do? Uh, uh, a a large range of invisible things. Okay, so. If you're having a flashback, most of the times you can't speak on it. So the dog has to be able to sense it, observe it, and then react to it. 
Uh, it may be that the dog just comes and nudges you so that you can reground yourself or to realize, oh, there's my dog, so I'm not really back where I think I am. Um, some of the clients will have what they call a disassociation where they literally don't know where they are. They can't move. Um, the nudging helps, pushing helps, that, that type of a thing for them. Beyond that, night terrors at night. Some spouses or partners, they can't sleep together anymore because they're having too many night terrors and they're swinging. Well, the dog can catch it long before you're swinging just because you're starting to wrestle and you're probably making some kind of moaning, groaning sound that isn't normal sleep. So that's how we teach it. We, we simulate it. We'll try to at first be very loud about it, very dramatic about it, and then start to reduce how much tone we give and how much movement we give to the animal so for him to reply. And, and all of this is done at night when the person is asleep and the dog is, is asleep. So you have to pick the right dog. You have to pick a dog who's pretty environmentally aware, doesn't sleep too hard, doesn't snore louder than you snore, you know, all of these things that, so the dog can respond. We tell him he needs to respond within about two to three minutes of it starting. It has to come and respond, even if he's dead asleep. He's got to respond within two to three minutes of it beginning to happen. We're talking about uh, service dogs with Lou and Dale Picard of Educated Canines Assisting with Disabilities. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted, B-I-Z, disrupted, or email them to comments at disrupted.business. Dale, you were going to say something? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> okay. So, uh, I, so as as uh, I, I guess as full disclosure, um, Dale and and Lou and I have a connection through a common person and service dog pair. Um, my my dear friend Captain Luis Carlos Montalvan uh, had a service dog named Tuesday, and Tuesday was bred and trained at ECAD, um, and 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 the way. The way, Lou, you just described um, dogs rousing people in night terrors was exactly the way that it was described to me when I first met Luis and Tuesday, how Tuesday would would work to disrupt Luis's nightmares. And and how so so you I want to talk a little bit about that. So the way you train them is you start training them with obvious signs of distress. And then over time, as they learn to respond, you make the signs of distress more and more subtle. Yes, yes, exactly. And then we have to wait for the dog to fall asleep and then do it again. You okay. Know? So it's not a matter of a nine to five training. Right. Okay. That's what you have to, you know, it has to be in the evening at night when they've been exercised and they're kind of pooped, and now will you still wake up if this is happening? Yeah. A, a, lot, a lot of times our dedicated trainers will take them home and work them in their own bedrooms at night to, to achieve some of these goals because it's almost impossible to have it all happen here uh, during uh, business hours. Okay, so the dogs get, uh, get road trips. Yep. Oh, yeah. And, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to training. Um, just to, as as we prepare to head into the break, what does it cost to raise a dog from birth through graduation? Uh, it 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 costs us anywhere from thirty five to fifty thousand dollars to train a dog. 
we, uh, we ha first off, we have to breed our animal and deliver it. And then we got to grow it over the next two years. So uh, we have our own breeding program. I do all the delivering of the puppies on, on, uh, for ECAD. I've been doing it now for 25 years. Uh, uh, and then in the process of the puppy growing up, it's all training from day one. So uh, the, the first couple of days, I leave them alone. So mom gets used to her puppies. And then from there, we introduce puppy nannies. Uh, so this all needs to be managed by people, right? P people just can't walk in. Schedules have to be uh, uh, maintained and stuff. So from puppy uh, in a whelping box to eight weeks, we have puppy nannies. And then from there, they go into uh, long-term foster homes for six to eight months. But still, uh, biweekly, people have to come in for training with their puppy so that we can keep the training of the litter all going forward at the same pace. So and then from there, at eight and nine months old, they come in back into uh, the kennel Monday through Friday, and then they go home for the weekend and enjoy the weekend in a, a foster home and learn home manners uh, because we, we can't do all of that here inside our facility. There's just too many dogs to handle. So foster homes are very important on that aspect. And and. And so after all of that is done, when somebody gets a dog, what does it cost to acquire a service dog for their, for, for use? So we, right. Go ahead, Lou. Go well, ahead. It, it's from birth to death. We have to follow the dog. Right. right. Birth to graduation, birth to death. Okay. So it's, we asked the, the recipients to help us raise $25,000 for their part of it. They come and stay with us for 13 days. We, we, house them, we have the transportation for their field trips. Then once they graduate, they have six weeks of homework. And then about three more times, we'll see them in the first year. And then we see them annually. But if the person were to get more disabled or their life changes, they need more, more training, we don't charge them again. Mm -hmm. So there's not additional for, the, for that kind of a thing. So, um, and there are, it's not just you give them the service dog and then everybody parts ways. There are, you, you continue to have a presence in the, yeah. in the life of the pair for as yeah. long yeah. as that service dog is with that person. That's right. We're family now. <laughs> and, right. and the, 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 the person has certain things that they have to commit to doing the regular, regular medical checkups for the vet yes. or for the dog. Um, they, and, and they have to hit those hallmarks along the way and you're, you're following that progress, right? Correct. That's correct. So I, I don't, I don't want to put on my hat of somebody who turns around struggling businesses so quickly, but, um, math is math. You just talked about how it costs about $50,000 to, 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 to bring a dog all the way through the process. You're asking for 25 from the person with whom the dog is matched. Where's the rest of the funding coming from? We apply for grants. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, several uh, foundations that have been supporting us for years. Actually, I had breakfast this morning and I picked up another foundation that's going to start donating to us this year. So uh, it's all word to mouth. People see us on your uh, show or they'll see us on TV talking about service dogs. They contact us. And we meet with them, and uh, if it's a if it's a good fit, they start uh, supporting our program. Uh, our 
our clients themselves have to fundraise. So they send off letter, uh, letter writing campaigns uh, where our help uh, in critiquing the letters and stuff. Uh, so that brings us uh, people to our mailing list, right? So our mailing list is constantly growing and uh, we're constantly working to uh, get these people to donate on a yearly basis. And, and you are a nonprofit organization, so. Yes, we're a 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, we've, not, we don't receive any insurance money. We don't have never received go- government money, state or federal, uh, to support the program. Every 100% of our money comes from donations and foundations. $25 checks, $50 checks, we get a lot of those. And, and, and that, those $25 and $50 checks are far less than what the people we were talking about earlier were paying for the fake vests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, you, you, you can't yeah. say it's not frustrating doing, doing the right thing. That's, that's very true. It costs a lot more to do the right thing. So uh, we, we've, even had, we've even had uh, someone steal uh, our company logo, my voice off the answering machine and create a fake business and selling capes and, uh, and f- fake stuff for service dogs. The only reason we found out about it is because one of the people that bought the fake stuff got caught at Heathrow Airport. At Heathrow Airport, if you identify your dog as a service dog, an ECAD service dog, they will call us up to verify the team. We could not verify the team. Wow. And, and the person spewed out stuff to the person where he got his ID. So it's Heathrow gave us that information. We followed up on it. And it was on a neighboring town, only 30 minutes away. How, how, I have to ask, how do you have that kind of reach that Heathrow knows to call you specifically apart from any other breeder? Well, it's not that. It's that they were claiming they were an ECAD service dog team. Okay. So they looked. So... I, when we've had other dogs fly through, I send a packet. The packet was not similar to what they have gotten before. So they did their job is what they did. Yeah. And, they just, and because they had our letterhead, which had our phone number, they called. The Interesting. Dog not, the dog must not have been behaving well, or the person was not behaving well. That's why they did that. And, and and plus, they see enough of our service dogs going through, so they know the quality of the dog. Is it a well-behaved dog? Does it listen to its master? It's pulling on the leash. Okay, so this dog might have been out of control a little bit, which right. which gave them the red flag, right? So, well, and, yeah. and 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 isn't that the the sort of universe the universal telltale of, of a of a fake service dog if it's not trained? Mm-hmm. And, and it's acting like a crazed dog in a new environment, that, that's probably a giveaway that what they're saying doesn't match right. with reality? Correct. That's right. That's, it. that's right. Okay. So one of the things that we'll talk about in a moment is uh, when we come back from break are the, the risks and the, the, the difficult parts of training service dogs. Um, but, but right now, I, I think we'll, we'll just leave it with the fact that there's big money in pretend service dogs, and, and we're going to find a way to get past that. We're talking with Dale and Lou Picard of Educated Canines Assisting with Disabilities. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. We're going to take a short break for some messages from our sponsors. Stick around and we'll be right back. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at Voice AM Business. 
Again, that's at Voice AM Business. And stay current. Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. We're talking about the business of creating service dogs with Lou and Dale Picard of Educated Canines Assisting with Disabilities. So we started talking a little bit before the break about the process of creating a service dog. And Dale, you mentioned it. It really starts with the breeding and the birth. And and as soon as the, the puppies are born, the puppy nannies take over. Aside from this sounding like the second most adorable job available on earth. What do the puppy nannies do and why is this an important part of the process? The puppy nannies uh, are the first ones that really touch and handle the baby. Their job is to get, pick it up and make sure that puppy doesn't stress out and then to make it fall asleep and let it sleep in your hands for a little bit and then hook it back up to mom to nurse. So that's associating humans with food, food is the reward for falling asleep. After a couple, a few days, five, six, seven days, now we want them to stress them out a little bit, and then we want them to calm them down and put them to sleep. So, which it will help build the confidence of the animal as it's growing, as and then as more and more people handle 
the puppies. Like we got half a dozen puppy nannies. They all come on shifts. So they get used to having all different hands handling them. So that's part of going to be part of their life going forward over the next two years, having all sorts of different hands involved in the training of this puppy. So that's the first socialization process that we start with them to make our journey easier going forward. How long does the nannying stage last? It lasts uh, eight, eight weeks, ten, nine weeks, depending. If our puppies are gaining weight and mom is not doing too bad, I'd like to have the puppies nurse for nine to 10 weeks. But it let, we have, let's assume I have a litter of 14, 15 puppies. My largest one was 16. Uh, mom cannot handle feeding all of them, even though we're supplementing food. So we have to wean them off early. So having those puppy nannies, feeding those puppies, the puppy mash, and being part of that is all part of the building up process. And, and after, after that stage is done, what's their, what, what's, what's their second class? Their second class is they move into a foster home. So uh, before we, we send them in uh, the last two weeks, they're here. We start create training process so that the screaming happens in the training center here at night so that the people in the home don't have to hear it. If, the, if we send them home too early and the puppies are screaming in the home, right. then they'll let them out of the crate and then they start the programming process in the wrong direction for us. So we try to eliminate some of that process before we put them into foster homes. The foster home will teach them the house manners. We'll also take them out walking in public. So it starts socializ socialization process of uh, meeting people in front of Walmart uh, uh, and just learn to be around other people in general. And how long does that phase of training last? It lasts till uh, the puppies about, what, nine to 10 months, Lou? They come back about nine months, but the puppy raisers do, the, the nursery team does so much for us. They take them for rides in the car, yeah. they have the vacuum cleaner going on, you know, the kids running through the house. All of that, all that real living gets, gets um, worked on with the puppies until they're about nine, 10 months old, and then they come back for training during the weekdays and they only go back on weekends. And, and so this is the part of the training where the dogs get used to and comfortable with unpredictable stimuli. Exactly. Yep. Just yep. Everyday life happening and going from one house to another house and adjusting to that too. Right. What happens after they're done this phase? Then they come in for final training. Now they're staying in, now they're not going back to the nursery homes very often. They might go for a long extended stay, like over Thanksgiving break or Christmas break, but otherwise they're just going to other people's homes on weekends and they're training with us during the weekdays. Now the trainers take over 100% and they're teaching them to retrieve and hold items and tug open doors and hold it as you're going back and forth with your wheelchair. Um, activate light switches, activate automatic door buttons, go to the mall, go to the grocery store, go to the movies, go to the restaurants. Um, everything you can think of, everything you, anything you can think of. We, we, even teach, we even teach them how to take the laundry out of the washing machine so to pull that door open to give you the, la the wet laundry. You throw it in the dryer when it's dry to pull it out of the dryer so you can fully put it in your basket. Yeah. Then you teach a dog, and you know, if you're all on one level, the dog can tug that into the room that you want that basket to go into. It's just on how creative you want to be with the 89 commands that we teach the animal. And, and, and that, was the, that was the answer to the question that I was about to, to ask. 
is this a core set of competencies that every service dog you train comes away with there they the, every dog learns all of these things or are we starting to tailor the commands toward what the dog will eventually be assisting with uh, i like to teach it all to them i like to teach it all of it to them now you might have a dog who's much better at turning light switches on than another dog or one dog that will hold the door open for 10 people to go through and, and love it. So then you just get dogs who like different tasks better, but they all get at, they all get exposed to all of them. And then we have our specialty stuff, you know. So um, every dog doesn't have to balance a person up and down the stairs, but pretty much all my dogs have to retrieve and Interesting. deliver back to you. Um, Almost everybody uses that that we that we've given dogs to. Once once we've uh, established the eighty nine commands into the animal and the animal is doing it with ease, then we start looking at the clients coming in, and uh, what can the dog do to satisfy the next five clients that we have in line? We take it over, Lou, if you want to explain that one. So we have a, a probably thirty or forty people on our wait list. And we're only putting out 20, 25 dogs a year. So I'm about 18 months behind in that. So I will have a group of dogs that are ready. Then you're going to look at your clients that are ready, see which one matches. So this next team training we're having in December is children. They're all children. So then you have to have a dog that kind of moves slowly and is, is soft with his body and soft with his mouth. Uh, one of them will work for the child. The child will give the commands to, and that child's in a wheelchair. So then delivery becomes important, and the size of the dog becomes important. Um, his, how much motivation does he need? There's another dog that's going to a, a girl who is nonverbal, and that dog is going to be assisted by her mother, but it's, it's to help her balance and make her, help her walk more so, uh, to try to encourage her to get some language skills and things like that. So that dog is more quiet than the dog that's working with the child in the wheelchair. He walks slower. He's, he's you know, more, just slower everywhere around. So I like my dogs to work within five to seven seconds of me giving a command. Some dogs need to work and take that seven to 11 seconds to work because of the client. Hmm. If you and think about that. And, and how long is this process that we're talking about right now? How long does that go on before they, I, I presume the next phase is getting into person-specific training? Person-specific training is the shortest part of it. Really? They already have all their basic stuff. So they can already retrieve, they can already tug, they can already balance, they, you know, they've been familiar with this. Then you're picking really, it's about personality. I like a dog who is more willing than the client, but less assertive than the client. That's my magic match. Interesting. And and how does how do you how do you find that balance? Is it just a matter of going through every, every dog's personality and every client's personality and figuring out when it works? Yeah. Yes. Because if you have, for instance, if you have a veteran who um, has rages, you know, he can get upset, and then he's going to be yelling for five or ten minutes. I can't give him a dog who the minute I say no to, I go, no. And the dog wants to lay down and go, okay, I'm sorry. That's not the right dog for that veteran. Right. He's afraid, you know. 
But if I have a dog, I have to say, you, on your bed, you lay down. And the dog's like wagging his tail like, yeah, 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 who cares? Yeah, you might be for the veteran with PTSD. Yeah. You know, you know where like even if you seem like you're upset about something, the dog gets a little silly about it. That helps break it if for a veteran who's, you know, upset if the dog starts rolling on his back, showing his belly, or starts to try to give him a toy. That's personality. I didn't teach the dog to do that. That's his personality. Right. What I do is I just bring it out, tease out the parts that I like. It's interesting you say that. Um, and getting back to, to Luis and Tuesday, who, uh, well, well, we'll talk about what they inspired in a minute. But even personality-wise, Tuesday was an inveterate flirt. Yes. Tuesday was a dog that loved people and 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 would would put himself in a position to to garner the attraction and attention of of people, no matter where they were. And 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 the the darker Luis felt at any given time, the brighter Tuesday got. Yeah, and yeah. you I could tell I could tell if Luis was starting to lose his thought process when he would be speaking, or especially if they were on stage. Because then Tuesday would just move and stand or sit, lay down in front of him and stare at him. Mm -hmm. Watch me, watch me, don't look at the crowd. But if, if, you were, if Luis was comfortable, if he was sitting just talking, telling stories, you see Tuesday get up and start walking the crowd, just yeah. sitting with them and like, yep, go ahead, you can pet me, we're all good here. But if Luis's voice changed or, or his eyes started going back and forth looking for thought too much, here came Tuesday back up to the front of the stage. You know, um, I used to tell Louise, he's not he's not the best obedient service dog, but he's the best dog for you because he'll be civil disobedient. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he's like you need to lighten up or you need to come on. You know, because Louise well, could get intense. He could get intense about a subject matter. Right. I was going to say, and Louise was an activist, so civil disobedience worked well for him. Right. Yes, yes. Yes. Exactly. So, what are the what are the risks? What are the hard parts of service dog training? What is the what is the greatest obstacle in 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 getting to a conclusion where you have a dog that has become a successful pair with a person? There, well, it's always they never live long enough. You know, the dog never lives long enough for 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 that. But the bigger risk is you know, you have to you have to stay with the with the client. You have to help them understand that yes, this dog is working for you. But if you had a bad day, this dog had a worse day. So you have to find a way to release the stress from the dog. Mm -hmm. And releasing the stress from the dog typically helps release the stress from the person. You know, they don't. I had a client who had severe PTSD, and if he had a, a PTSD moment. It could last him two, three hours. And when it was over, all he wanted to do was sleep. But I had to help him understand, like, you can't go right to sleep. You have to now let the dog know that he successfully helped you come back from this event. And now that you're okay again, you got to help him release his stress. you got to throw that ball for 10 minutes, or you got to play tug of war with him. So he has to physically be able to move a little bit to release it. Then he can cuddle with you. But... The dog retains it, even dogs in facilities that just go around and let everybody pet them all, you know, for an hour or two, needs to go out and release the stress. He just absorbed all the stress you just gave him or her. I'm a true believer in that, that you have to let them run or tug or be physical afterwards. 
that's got to be difficult for people who live in cities. Well, throw the ball down your hallway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, throw, get the laundry basket the other end of the hallway and let it tug it to you five or six times. Yeah. You know, it, it has to happen. So, got to get creative. Okay. If you've joined us late, we're talking with service dog experts Dale and Lou Picard of Educated Canines Assisting with Disabilities. If you have questions, tweet them to us at B-I-Z Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. I want to talk a little bit about the legal framework that has come up around the issue of service dogs. In 2009, um, then-Senator Al Franken introduced the Service Dogs for Veterans Act, which was inspired by our mutual friend Luis Carlos Montalvan and his Service Dog Tuesday. And, and that law mandated that the Veterans Administration undertake a three-year study on the efficacy of providing service dogs for veterans and to measure the outcomes observed in that study and report to Congress. Uh, before that study was even remotely close to being done, the PAUSE Act was introduced for the first time and continues to be introduced and introduced and seems to have been fine-tuned along the way. The PAUSE Act is the Puppies Assisting Wounded Service Members Act, which requires that the Veterans Administration provide grants to veterans to cover the necessary costs of training and acquiring a service dog, and here's the important part that gets underlined, from an accredited organization. And my understanding is that the first several iterations of this bill didn't include the accreditation requirement. Why was adding accreditation important? Well, it means that you have an overseer. It's not, it's not good enough for Dale and Lou to say, you know, yes, we run a reputable organization. We put out good dogs. We have an overseer that comes in and investigates and looks at the paperwork and looks at the, the dog's records and interviews clients and volunteers and staff members to make sure that you uh, have the best practices that, that can be available to you, that you're following up on your clients. You know, people think that, oh, I can... I can get $25,000 and hand this dog off to somebody. Well, it's not that easy. Once you, once you hand the dog off, then you have to keep following up on it. What if that client gets more disabled or they have a progressive disability? Or like I said, they have a life change. Then what happens? You know, they try to contact you. You're not around because it was a part-time thing or because it was just one little segment of your organization. So for ADI, Assistance Dog International, they come in and they're worldwide. They come and do accreditations for, for us. It's an it's a organization of service dog providers. Uh, so it, it's, it's pretty rigid. It took three days of them with us and it took us about three months to prepare for it. And we've been accredited since 2003. This is our fourth time going through and still, it still takes time to make sure all your procedures are up to date, all your records are up to date, everything's in manuals, you know, for them to come in. It helps provide the whole industry that belongs to this group the same standards. Yeah. So not all our training is the same, right? But it brings us closer to the center of us all going the same direction. Right. Versus having all these different programs doing their own thing. We have a hundred and some odd programs doing the same thing. Right. So it okay. ensures it ensures consistency while while yep. the training process or the breeding process may not be the same, accreditation ensures that 
every that every dog from every organization that's that's accredited will be able to pull a wheelchair if they have to pull a wheelchair or will yeah, be able right. to intervene in a medical crisis if that's what they're supposed to do. Correct. Right. Correct. We were talking about the the process of of training earlier so particularly with these efforts to get funding for the many veterans who need service dogs as well as the the at large population who who have a, a demonstrated need for service dogs you've matched the dog and the client what's the process then they are with us for 13 days um, they usually come the day before so they're usually with us closer to 15 days we have six days of lectures and drills and practicals skill building in, in an environment that I can control. So they'll do it in the in our training center, they'll do it outside of our training center, but I can pretty much control what happens. And then after all the lectures are done, and each lecture builds on the next lecture. So we teach them everything from how to groom your dog to how do you know if he's challenging or resisting you to what you should expect at the vet. Um, if you're gonna be traveling on airplanes, we'll make a simulated place like how do you load a dog into a seat at the airplane or if you're taking public transportation then we take them in public I take them to the mall to the grocery store to restaurant after restaurant to walking on the streets we do one night training so we'll go out at night when it's dark so the client understands what is a dog act like at night versus during the daytime um, in busy time and and during slow times and then we graduate them. They go home with their dogs with six weeks of homework to do with their dogs, training and keeping up the routine. They need to submit paperwork once a week from a link that we send them. They send us a, a summary of the week. And after the six week, now you're pretty much into a routine. If there was any quirks that happen or things that happen, we're able to resolve them fairly quickly. So that brings us up now. You've been with me about eight weeks, two weeks in team training, six weeks afterwards. So that's two months. We'll give you about two months off, and then we're going to send you a survey. We want to wait on your dog. I want to know what your dog is eating. You know, what kind of toys does he have? Just a survey to go. So how's it going? Oh, what kind of toys did you buy him? What are you feeding him? Where have you gone? Things like that. At six months, nine months, and then at a year, we see them. They have to come back and see us. We do another public access test. Um, we'll take them out in public. And then yearly after that, but they can come back more if they need to. We'll have brush up classes. We have open training days if they want to come back and do it. Lou, you, you and I spoke um, earlier and you told me a story about Tuesday. Um, and I think it's an answer to this question, but I'm going to ask you the question because I see when I when I read about this subject, I see a lot of people asking the question, do service dogs like what they're doing? Are they enjoying their job? <laughs> well, so I say yes, because they they get adventures. I mean, Tuesday had the most adventurous life ever that even when when Louise passed away, Tuesday came to stay with me for Dale and I for a little over a year and he was bored. And I, I run a pretty fast life. I mean, I took him to work with us, took, but he was bored. He was bored and I knew he was bored, but I didn't realize how much he loved the traveling of life until Dale and I went to D Washington, D.C. And when we walked and I brought Tuesday with us. And when we went into the hotel room, 
that dog thought he had just come home. He had a whole routine that he did. He jumped on the bed and he ran through the bathroom and he went all over the place. I thought, oh my goodness, he's looking for Luis. He's looking for Luis. And then he kind of looked at me and he jumped on the bed and like, hey, I'm here. And I'm like, you like this, don't you? He, he loved his life with Luis. And in the same with the other dogs, most pets have to stay home all day when you go to work. Our dogs go to work. They go out in public. They do have to have their exercise and we absolutely mandatory. They have to have their exercise playtime um, as part of their routine of their day. But they get brushed every day. They get daunted on. They get the public saying hello to them. If they didn't like it, they wouldn't become a service dog. You, I know it. Yes, that's right. It. You know it in training. Before we even let the client in, the dog will not be able to withstand the pressure of the public. Right. Well, that's a, that's a question I wanted to touch on very briefly. When do you know whether a service dog candidate will be a suitable service dog or whether they'll be what you call a release dog and adopt it out? Um, usually by the time they're a year old, sometimes much earlier. Sometimes I can tell by the time they're nine or 10 weeks old. Um, and sometimes, so they have dogs have different stages of their life. And, you know, between the, between the time they get spayed or neutered in their first birthday, I can, I can pretty much tell you for sure then. You know, there'll be little things. If I bring the dog to the mall for the day and the next day he has a loose stool, I know he did not enjoy that mall. Right, right. Okay. And if, if I say, okay, so that was once. Now I did it three or four times and every single time he's having a loose stool. What am I doing? I'm not doing the right thing by the dog. We, we've, we've had dogs tell us at that moment they weren't happy to start pooping in the mall. And you, 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 we trained them to go to the bathroom before going into the mall. We were outside. We asked the dog to toilet. Dog did not toilet. You assume you're all set, and you walk 200 feet inside that building, and somebody's going, sir, sir. Uh, you look behind you, and there's little brown dots on the floor. <laughs> okay. So they're very, quick, they're very quick to tell you they're not enjoying the job. Well, sometimes you got to let the dog talk for itself. And, That's right. And, and I don't want to leave on that note, but <laughs> you, you and ECAD have a lot going on. You're, you, you're putting up a new building for a canine residence. You're looking for veterans because you've gotten a grant to subsidize service dogs for veterans. Yes. You're in constant need of volunteers, of home handlers, and you're doing all this as a 501c3 nonprofit. Yes, That's right. That's correct. Okay. Well, that's going to be the last word then. Dale and Lou, thank you so much for joining us. Dale Picard is co-founder and executive director, and Lou Picard is co-founder and director of programs for Educated Canines Assisting with Disabilities, one of the nation's premier service dog programs. You can find ECAD on the web at ecad1.org and on Twitter at ECAD Service Dogs. We'll put links to their website and social media in the episode notes on our webpage, as well as some links to facts about service dogs and service animals. And if you want to adopt a release dog, Find out how on their website. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and other original music are by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Carol Lunger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network. Thank 
Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week. Thank you.